So we're continuing to work our way through the, the heart principles, and I'm going to remind you that uh, we've talked about hear and understand me already. We've talked about even if you disagree, don't make me wrong already. Today we're going to talk about acknowledge the greatness within me. And we'll be coming next week to remember to look for my loving intentions. And the week after that, to tell me the truth with compassion. I'll remind you that Dr. Trueblood said, these are the five unspoken requests we make of each other. And so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to focus in on acknowledging the greatness within me. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you for giving us the sun today and shining your light into the midst of our darkness and our spirits. Uh, we ask that the words of my mouth... The meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, I, I was part of Boy Scout Troop Number 3 in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, troop 3 is the longest continuously chartered scout troop in the state of Texas. Uh, and um, when I was there, the, the pattern was when you came in as a youngster, uh, you were put under one of the older boys kind of for, for maturing and, and guidance and mentoring. And then as you worked your way up through the ranks and so forth and you achieved higher and higher levels, uh, eventually it, it became your turn to be the leader for some of the new young boys. So I started off in the Longhorn Patrol, and then remember we're in Corpus, uh, eventually I was asked to take leadership of the Seagull Patrol. Uh, and, and you know, I, I was given a fresh batch of brand new boys coming into the troop, and we had our first camp out. And about partway through the day on Saturday, I thought I'm gonna set them all on fire. I mean, you know, they were obnoxious, they were immature, they didn't know how to do anything. Now, now I don't know where it is that I thought like a fifth or sixth grade boy would be mature. I mean, really? You got, have y'all ever known a fifth or sixth grade boy that was mature? I mean, you know, but anyhow, it was like having a bunch of cats that not only didn't want to do what you wanted to do, but they were antagonistic to you. Uh, and so uh, I, I was just partway through the day, I'm just losing it. I want to kill them all. And I'm going to my scoutmaster, uh, Hank Deschner, who is Elizabeth Nettles' uncle. Uh, I'm going to Hank and I'm going, Hank, I'm going to kill them all. I'm just going to set them all on fire and get be done with it. I, you know, they're driving me crazy. I mean, you know, this is the worst bunch of blah, 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 blah. I just kind of went on a rant. And Hank, Hank, he said, Tom, 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 slow down, slow down. He says, remember, you know, they're, they're all brand new. This is their first camp out. He says, you know, what you need to do is you need to stop criticizing them and start leading them. And I thought about the way Hank worked with us. Now, now Hank was a former Marine so you need to hear, he's no pushover, right? I mean, and, and you know, big guy, strong, uh, and uh, uh, Hank didn't put up with a lot of nonsense. But the other end of it is, if you didn't know how to do something, instead of chewing you out about it, Hank would come and he'd say, okay, let me, get, let me show you how to do that. You know, here's how you hold this, here's how you do this. He'd walk you through it, and then he'd say, okay, now you show me, and you'd show, and he used an apprentice model, right? You show me and how you're doing this. Oh, okay. Okay, now you've got it. Show me. I'm going to stand over here and you show me how you're doing it. Yeah? Okay, you got it. You're doing great. I mean, instead of criticizing, he, he led us through that. And, and I started thinking about, oh, oh, okay. And, and, and he said, you know, Tommy, he said, when you started this, he says, you know, we all wanted to kill you. <laughs> now it's your turn. Yeah, okay. Okay, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this modeling of, of what he showed me, you know, acknowledging the greatness within me, uh, recognizing that um, 
you know, sometimes we, we just really don't know uh, as much as we think we know, uh, but also recognizing the weakness within us that we need to affirm in each other. Uh, so so uh, I started thinking about that, and that's kind of shaped my whole thinking for today. You know, stop criticizing, start leading. Uh, and, and I started playing with this idea of greatness. So if you look up greatness, uh, y'all know I like to play with words. Uh, greatness, the noun, you know, the quality of being very large in size, extent, or intensity. Uh, being remarkable in magnitude, degree, or extent. Being of outstanding, significant, or important. That first definition you might want to use cautiously, because I can think if you walked up to somebody and you said, you know, you're really very large in size. They might not hear that as an acknowledgement. Just saying, you know, they might be a little insulted. But, but you know, being outstanding, outstandingly significant, importance, uh, uh, superior in quality or character, uh, being eminent or distinguished, those are things that, you know, sound good, right? I mean, we like that. that that's kind of the way the world talks about greatness and all. And I started thinking about, well, what is it if you, if you were going to think about what does it mean to be great? What, what do some people say about that? So uh, a few quotes. Uh, a hero is an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles from Christopher Reeve. Continuous effort, not strength or intelligence, is the key to unlocking your potential from Churchill. Uh, Gandhi, strength does not come from physical capacity. It comes from an indomitable will. Hemingway, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong at the broken places. I think that's an interesting quote. Uh, good actions give strength to ourselves and inspire good actions in others. That's from Plato's Ethics. Uh, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you find strength. And then this is Cindy's favorite quote from Frederick Nietzsche, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And I keep reminding her, you know, baby, you know, one day it kills you. So you got to be careful with this one, you know. Uh, and then Kennedy, you know, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. And as I read through those, um, one of the, the kind of common thread I noticed is that, that all of them spoke about what, is it, what does it mean to be great uh, under duress or in times of adversity? Because truly the who we are, you know, in times of, of duress or adversity, that, that's where either our greatness comes out or our pettiness uh, in those moments. Uh, and to acknowledge the greatness within me is, is more than what we often want to make it into, uh, which is this kind of uh, shallow self-affirmation kind of thing. Um, some of you remember Al Franken on Saturday Night Live. You know, we don't want to descend to the thing like Al used to do, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, right? That's, that's not what really, that's not greatness, okay? And that kind of shallow self-affirmation, which we've gotten so good at in our culture, uh, in the last decade, there's been a lot of social science around that that shows that it's actually very counterproductive because one, when people compliment us for stuff we don't really deserve compliments for, most of the time we know it. We know what a sympathy compliment is. We hear it for that. We know the falseness of it. And so we are trained not to trust that. And that's why we begin to have so much trouble uh, with actually being able to understand the greatness within us because we've been trained not to trust what anybody tells us. Uh, to, to have to acknowledge that greatness is what, what Hank used to do, which is w when you did it well, when you got it right, he told you you got it right. And when you didn't do it well, he would help you understand how to do it well. 
not just to hand out false compliments. Now, I've got to say that some of us, uh, and I don't know about you, but some of us have a real struggle with some of this because uh, in my household, at least, uh, compliments were not handed out easily. Uh, we were expected we were expected to do well. We were expected to make good grades. We were expected to do well in school. We were expected to, to really do well at everything we did. And so, so, you know, when you did that, you did not get complimented because that's what you were expected to do. You had to really excel at something to get a compliment. And if you didn't do well, then you got the criticism. So our household tended to be a very critical one when I was growing up. And, and as I uh, got married and then we started having kids and I started working in churches, uh, that was one of the pieces of feedback I got from people a lot of times is, you know, you, you, you never tell us when we're doing well. I'm going, well, you know, I expect you to do well. You know, why, why should I compliment you? This is what I expect you to do. You know, this is, this is what I expect. No, no, yeah, but, you know, you never tell us that. And, and I had to work at the fact that it was really easy for me to be critical um, and, and when you just, you know, blew it through the roof, it was easy for me to compliment you. But when you were really doing well, but, you know, that kind of was where I thought you would, should be doing it, uh, you know, I didn't often tell you that. And people would notice that. Well, you're not, you know, you don't give us that feedback. And the problem with that is, you know, we, when I expect you to do well and you do that, well, I do this. Well, you know, then what happens, right? I just raise the bar on you. Well, if you can do that good, I'm going to raise the bar mentally. And so it becomes increasingly difficult for you to get a compliment out of me. And, uh, and my, my children... Uh, my wife, uh, the people in the churches I work with have, have reminded me of that. And that's one of the things I confess I still have to work at uh, because it's hard for me to do that. Uh, it, it's getting past, you know, my uh, you know, kind of training from when I was young and being able to understand that, you know, people need to hear that when they're doing well. And so that, that's part of what uh, True Blood's talking about in this acknowledging the greatness is understanding that, you know, we need to, when, when we really do well, we need to have that affirmed. We need to know that. Don't just assume we know that, but we need to know it. But I want to suggest to you that, that, that this goes even deeper than that. It's not just shallow self-affirmation, uh, and, and it's not just uh, being complimented when you do something well. Uh, that, that this goes, for those of us who are Christ followers, this goes even deeper than that. So, um, you know, if you look in Scripture, there's a couple of inter interesting interactions with Jesus and people. Uh, when he's calling Philip and Nathaniel, uh, Jesus goes to Galilee. He found Philip. He said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida and uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. Uh, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, you need to understand that Nazareth was a town located next to a major uh, Greco-Roman uh, uh, city in that part of Israel and was mostly kind of the people that did the work for them. It was kind of the, the suburb, if you will, of Sephoris, and this is where most of these people lived and worked. So N Nazareth had kind of a reputation of being one kind of a lower class folks, but also, you know, the, it, it also it was beholden to this Greco-Roman culture, and so it was compromised. And that's what Nathaniel is pointing out when he makes this comment. Uh, people kind of look down their nose at Nazareth, and, and he says that. And, and Jesus' comment, you know, for many years I heard that as kind of a snide comment. Right? Oh, well, here's truly an Israelite who there's no deceit, you know, right? Kind of a, kind of a, a little bit of a side shot at Nathaniel. Uh, and, and that's what I heard when I read it. Now, then I went to Lano. And uh, I grew up in South Texas uh, in, in a culture which tends to be very gracious and very polite. 
you know, you don't really say anything directly bad about someone. You kind of beat around the bush, you know, about it. Uh, and you don't tell people no. You just find polite ways to make excuses for why you don't do what they want you to do. Uh, so there's, there's this kind of dance, verbal dance that goes on to avoid being uh, directly uh, confrontive or anything. And, and, and then I moved to Lano where we had all these Germans who said exactly what they thought. And I had my first administrative council meeting, and we're talking through stuff, and one of the guys turns to me and says, well, that's the dumbest idea I've heard all day. And I'm thinking, well, you cranky old, right? But see, what I learned was they they always told me exactly what they thought. I always knew there was never any question about what somebody thought or believed. There was never any game playing. I always knew exactly what they thought, and I learned to appreciate that. Because they said it with no agenda. You know, they tell you that in the meeting. Well, that was a really dumb idea. Okay, yeah, let's go get some coffee, right? I mean, it was like, no big deal, right? It's just the way it was. And I started reading this passage and hearing Jesus saying this about Nathaniel. Oh, here's a guy who really tells you exactly what he thinks. It's, it's not a side swipe at him or a slur. He's acknowledging Nathaniel's kind of brutal honesty in everything he says. He recognizes that and calls it out. In the same way, you have this uh, passage uh, exchange with Peter. This is often called Peter's Confession. Uh, When Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They're kind of, you know, buttering him up and complimenting and everything. And then he says to them, Okay, that's great, guys, but, but who do you say that I am? And when he puts it on them personally, you notice the only one who answers is my friend Simon Peter, bless his heart. Uh, Simon Peter answers, you know, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Again, no filter, brain to mouth. Um, And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which literally means the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Blessed are you, because you didn't figure this out on your own. This didn't come out of your brain or your knowledge or whatever, but because you were open to the leading of God. When we start talking about greatness within the church, within those of us who are Christ followers. It's more than just complimenting each other. It's recognizing that we're called to something more, and God makes us capable of something more. Now, now a lot of us will talk about being um, you know, created in God's image and so forth and so on, and, and, and the gospel story recognizes that. You know, you go to Genesis, you know, we're created in, in the image of God. Uh, one of our uh, Bible study uh, teachers has pointed out that the language there Uh, is the language that used to be used in ancient times when you were the emperor over a large territory and you wanted people to know what you looked like. So they would carve images of you and they would set them up in the city centers so that people in these different cities could know what their emperor looked like. It's that kind, that's what that image is. That's the language that's applied to us. We're, we're carved in the image of God so that when people encounter us, they're supposed to have an idea of what the eternal king looks like. Now that's what we're supposed to be. But the gospel story also tells us that we fell away from that, that we chose, instead of looking like God, to reflect other images to the world. And and indeed, we got so deep into that that we began to look like something other than God, and we weren't even sure what we looked like, and God didn't leave us there. 
that God's grace comes into our lives in a way that says, listen, I'm going to open your eyes to the image that's within you that I intended you to have. I'm going to open your eyes to that possibility. It's what John Wesley would talk about as prevenient grace, that God's grace would move in our lives to open our eyes to who God really created us to be. Not simply who God created us to be, but who God calls us to be. And so in John's gospel at the beginning of it, you hear the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him because it was blinded to the image. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. To all who received him, he, became, he gave power. I mean, this grace, this movement of the Spirit that opens our eyes up and allows us to be, not, not simply you know, thinking, oh yeah, I know I was created in the image of God, but I don't know what that looks like. But, but our eyes are opened up to know what that looks like, and God empowers us to become that, to be children of God. You know, and being children goes beyond just looking like. Being children has to do with this love relationship that exists. Uh, we had a big uh, event here. You know, some of you were here in December um, when our daughter got married. And we had people coming in, uh, old friends coming in, and family members, and extended family, and folks. And, and we had all these folks that came in. And, and uh, you know, it's always fun to kind of listen to them because whenever you have those gatherings, people will say, oh, well, you know, she looks just like her, or she looks like you, or he looks like this, and blah, blah, blah. Or he sounds just like you hear all these things where they're telling you how they look like you. Sometimes you're not sure you agree, but, you know, they're, they're telling you how much they look. But they're also telling you whether they talk like you or they have mannerisms like you, and you see all this. And, and you know, as parents, you know, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Right? You know, we parents would go, yeah, that's my kid. Yeah. I mean, we kind of like, but, that, but here's the other part. You know, the reason we get so excited is because, you know, we love them. You know, we love our kids. And the fact that they have picked up something of us and carried it with them tells us that they love us too. And that's a powerful thing. It's what it means to be children of God, not simply that we're creating the image of God, but we're in this love of God that we carry part of God with us. And in love, we reflect that to the world and, and back to God. It goes way beyond being made in the image of God. And it enters into this place where not only do we bear God's image, but we dwell in, in the love of God and we know that we're God's beloved. And what we can get there, my friends, uh, that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. Think about it. If you're going to reflect, if you're going to reflect the love of God and the image of God, what that might look like. And Jesus tells us, you know, uh, this is in Luke, and, and he's just told the disciples that he's going to be arrested and crucified and, and die and then be resurrected. And right after that, ironically, a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest of you must become like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. I mean, the, the love of God is this giving away love where Christ gives himself away and says, you know, if you're going to reflect that image, that's, that's the way you have to love. You have to 
give yourself away. I mean, Paul reminds the Philippians in this great hymn, uh, if then, then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. That each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the glory of Christ begins in the giving of himself away. And to be children of God, to be created in the image of God and loved and restored to that image in the love of God, is to reflect that same kind of love into the world. And when we talk about acknowledging the greatness within me, it's, it's not simply this kind of uh, false, kind of shallow, uh, superficial complimenting stuff. And, and, and it's not even just for us, at least, the, the kind of thing of recognizing when we do well, but it, but, it, but it has to do with this recognition that goes even deeper that we are children of God, that we are created in God's image and restored to that image by the love of God, and we are held in God's love. And it's when we recognize that in each other as children of God that we acknowledge the true greatness within us and within others. I mean, it's, it's, it's like Hank said so long ago. You know, it's not about criticizing each other, but it's about leading ourselves and leading others to truly experience the, the love of God, to truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior to truly grow in the image of Christ. And when we do that as beloved children of God, then we find our true greatness. Let's pray. My God, you have created us to reflect your face and your love in all the world. And we give you thanks for such a high honor that you would call us your children, that you would not only recreate us in that image but you would hold us in your love so father we we ask that you open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to know to the very depths of who we are that we are your children and to be able to acknowledge that in each other so that your greatness might be made known throughout the world we pray this in the name of jesus amen